Podcast world, here we are, the Foul Life Podcast, back at you. Another episode brought to you by our friends at Gerber Gear, Stay Sharp America. We use Gerber for everything, fishing, hunting, building blinds. We have them in our trucks, our tackle boxes, our blind bags, our decked drawer systems. We have them in our drawers in our house. We have them in our garages. We depend on sharp edges. We like our edges to stay sharp. We do not want any accidents. Make sure you stay responsible with any knife that you use. We depend on Gerber to make sure that we stay sharp, America. Today's episode is a good one. It's gonna be a strong one. We are joined by two of California's finest. Former chairman of the board for California Waterfowl Association, Yancey Forrest Knowles, and current chairman of the board of California Waterfowl Association. You guys have heard him here before. You've seen him on many episodes of the Fowl Life Television on the Outdoor Channel, Mr. Rocky Merlo. Welcome, guys. Nice to be with you. Thanks. I wanted to start this off by talking about yesterday for a minute. And it, it was weird how it transitioned on. It was on the drive back yesterday as we were on the 505. Um, there is a lot of duck hunting, a lot of outdoors. There is a lot of agriculture and crops and farming. Like California isn't known for this. If you go somewhere in the country and you talk to somebody about California, they think Hollywood. They think L.A. They think San Francisco and the Golden Gate Bridge. Man, this state is unbelievable. From the coast to the interior to the desert, there is so much that this state has to offer that I don't know if a lot of people in the country really get that. Is Does that kind of ring a bell or does that mean anything when you hear words like that, Yancey? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's amazing when people come out here, you know, the perspective that they share with us and it's totally uh, uninformed. And I wouldn't say it's really wrong. It's just really uninformed. And, um, uh, you know, we have, a, we have a state here that's 1,000 miles long, almost 400 miles wide, and it's got every living biome that, that, that exists. All of them are here in California, from the lowest desert, you know, to the highest mountain peaks. And with that just comes a plethora of wildfowl. And it's amazing that we still got 40 million people in this state and that we still have access to hunting and fishing like we do. It's amazing. When you think about what that means, the first thing that goes off in your head, Rock, is, oh, it's just, you know, activities, right? You can go out and go fishing for a sturgeon. You can go catch a striper on the river. You might be able to go duck hunting. It's just activities. But there's a lot deeper meaning of the outdoors and sportsmen. Big game, small game, waterfowl, upland birds, fishing. This state relies on this in a lot of ways, dating back in its early history. I want to touch on that for a second. Currently with you, Rock, and then I want to go, Yancey, of hunting and fishing is a big part of why California is why California is right now. I'm not talking about politics. I'm not talking about anything that has to do with, you know, the aesthetics of, of if you look at it from the outside looking in. But this state's success is dependent on the outdoors. When you hear that, Rock, do you think about, there's a lot of hunters and fishermen out here. Is there a lot of people from out of state that come hunt here? Or do they even know that y'all have this to offer? Um, you know, there are the ones that do know come. And, um, but we don't have the, you know, you don't have the migration in to hunt like Californians going to Montana or Colorado or Idaho. 
Arkansas, Texas. Um, but it, since we've started working with the Foul Life and, um, you know, basically getting the word out on your show and through social media, um, there are more people coming to, to, to try California for the waterfowling. And a lot of them come to shoot, you know, they want to shoot a pintail um, just because we have so many of them. Um, a cinnamon teal. Or cinnamon teal, you know, some of these species that we have. Um, you know, our goose hunting out here, uh, our populations are growing um, exponentially that uh, there is a big draw to come to hunt the specks here um, because our goose limits are so liberal, you know. Uh, plus our duck hunt, our duck limits are liberal. Um, we're a seven duck limit, 105 day season, a 30 goose limit. You know, so 10 specks, 20 snows. Uh, we do have the most liberal season and limits in all of the continent. Um, and, you know, it's the, the word is getting out. Um, we have a lot to offer. We don't have the lodges that like the other states do, like in Missouri and Arkansas. Um, but we have a lot of good guides out here, a lot of outfitters um, that do the waterfowl. So... You know, there's opportunity out here. Um, California Waterfowl Association, we have, I believe, one of the most extensive hunt programs of any. The, the most extensive. Of any conservation organization. Um, California Waterfowl has been acquiring ranches. Um, Yancey was uh, chairman of the board, I believe, when they acquired their first large land holding. <clears throat> Grizzly Ranch, um, uh, and our hunt program um, is massive. I mean, we, I'm, I, I don't know the number of hunters we bring in on a given Wednesday, Saturday, or Sunday, but it's, it's close to what like a refuge system is, uh, one of the refuges. Um, like Grizzly Island, I think we can have, what do we have out there, 11 blinds? Yeah. Well, and if I may, one of the really uh, exciting and unique things about the CWA hunt program is the aspect where people can uh, go into a, like a lottery system. You know, they can purchase tickets, an opportunity to be drawn, and so on and so forth. The thing about that that's so neat is some of the best clubs in the state uh, donate those hunts. And this is an opportunity for families, you know, and young men and women and so on and so forth to go hunt some of the finest clubs in this state. Um, there's no other way you can get on those clubs unless you're a personal friend or a guest. And so it's a great opportunity in that respect. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's wide ranging. I mean, it's, you know, it, our hunt program um, stretches down uh, from uh, the clubs like Mystic Lake, which is down by um, the San, San Jacinto Wildlife Area, uh, which is down by Laguna. It's just 40 minutes inland from Laguna uh, and stretches all, and we, our program goes all the way up to Northeastern California. Um, and I think that like in any given Wednesday, Saturday or Sunday, I would assume we bring in, uh, we can bring in close to around a hundred uh, hunters into our hunt program you know, that are drawn, uh, have drawn a, a, an opportunity to hunt. Um, and so they've worked hard. It's online, cwa.org, calwaterfowl.org. Um, you can check it out. 
and you can apply. Uh, so folks from out of state are applying, and um, it only costs five bucks to apply. And then if you draw, then you have to, and if you're not a member, you need to become a member. Um, but, you know, those programs and then, you know, what you've been uh, showing on your shows, um, uh, you know, it's getting the word out, like I said. So On top of the waterfowling, there's a lot of other outdoor recreation here as far as wildlife goes with you have the offshore fishing you have the river fishing you have the lake fishing you have a lot of different species of fish then you have the big game that we talked about with mule deer blacktail deer antelope sheep tule elk um I'm, i know i'm missing some there's wild pig hunting like it's going out of style out here oh it's 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 Predator overrun hunting. with pigs overrun with pigs yeah. um there's a lot of vast opportunity here Yancey, hearing what Rocky's talking about with, you know, kind of the, the present of what's going on, you know, with the CWA and the new Hunter program, historically, there's a word that I've heard you say, I've heard Rocky say, but I really don't know what the Webster's Dictionary definition would be, reclamation. That's a big part of California and, and what has happened through this state historically. What does reclamation mean, and how did it come into effect in the Pacific Flyway, and more specifically, the state of California? Well, reclamation uh, historically means two things, actually. Initially, what it meant was uh, creating a situation where you could use land that was not usable. Uh, Because, for example, in, in the North Sacramento Valley here, the Sacramento River flooded annually in massive floods. And every time new, uh, you know, after California became a state in 1850 and, and the folks came out here and wanted to get involved in farming, they start developing these farms and they get flooded out every winter. It was amazing, uh, you know, the, that on 10 miles on either side of the Sacramento River originally were these what they called tulares, which was just this massive growth of tulis. And, uh, you know, which gives you an idea of how much water was out there and how much, you know, how large the flood was every year. But it took an uh, amazing amount of work and effort and time to be able to reclaim that land or make it available to agriculture, uh, mining, timber industry, other ways of people being able to make a living in this new state. And uh, is in fact, in that particular case, it wasn't until about 1920 that they were able really to reclaim that land and set up a system of bypasses that could control the water and people could go in and build their farms and, and be assured that they weren't going to be flooded out every year. But in the last 30 or 40 years, and primarily with the work of conservation organizations, you know, like CWA, Reclamation means something different. It means going in and being able to uh, use the land differently and and to be able to save the land and and to make it uh, available for all generations in the future. For example, um, duck clubs, private duck clubs, and also the federal and state refuges, over 40 in this state, have either developed wetlands or reclaimed, brought back wetlands. Initially in California, we had some 5 million acres of wetland. And through the process, primarily of agriculture, but also, you know, cities being built and everything else, we were reduced to less than uh, a million acres of wetlands in the state. 
But again, you know, through private duck clubs primarily, also the federal and state refuges, we're back up to almost, and I, and I, I should say also other conservation organizations, we're back up to about three and a half million acres of wetlands. So, you know, again, reclamation can, can mean two different things. Rocky, along the same lines of reclamation, I've heard you say the word easement a lot when you're talking about a duck club or farming and agriculture, you make part of your livelihood in farming. What does easement mean and how does it play in with reclamation or the development of these duck clubs or these lands or agricultural land that Yancey's referring to? Well, the easement process is, um, is basically reclaiming the land back to natural. Um, so you'll take a, we'll take a block of agricultural ground um, and um, it can be virtually anywhere in the state. Um, and if the owner wants to convert it from farmland back to riparian, uh, he'll apply for an easement. Um, most of them are through WCB, the Wetlands Conservation Board. Um, they'll approach an organization like CWA or DU, um, and within CWA, we'll help with the process, filling out the paperwork, um, working with um, the field biologists uh, from the state or federal level, and coming up with a plan, and then eventually getting an appraisal on the property. And if the appraisal um, fits what you're wanting, you know, in the way of a monetary dollar amount, um, and then you can proceed with the easement. Um, and they're negotiated. They're like a contract with a, a state or federal government. Um, and so you can go into a, a 20 year, 30 year, 100 year. You know, it just depends on which contract you work out with them. And then the, basically what the government is paying you uh, a fee to never farm that ground again. And then you're responsible for managing, once the habitat's developed, the riparian, like closed zone farms, which you hunted in, um, then you're responsible to maintain that ground for the life of the contract. So uh, some of the ones that I'm familiar with are 50 year, okay? And uh, so for 50 years, you can't build on it, you can't farm it, but you have to maintain water on it and um, keep up on the structures and, and the ponds and the brood water and so forth. Um, and a lot of the duck clubs uh, that you see in the Butte Sink and up through here, up to Rancho Esquan, uh, which you've hunted on, um, are in easements. So... Well, the, the, uh, another interesting thing, just to build on that uh, rock, is the fact that often it allows people that couldn't afford to set land aside for, the, for habitat development of some sort. It gives them the funding that they can then afford to do that. And a lot of easements, you're right, there are 50-year easements and, and, and other varieties of time spans and everything, but quite a few of them are in perpetuity. That means these wetlands will be here forever. And, you know, and they'll have a team that'll come in once a year to review it to make sure that you're maintaining it according to the agreements that you made uh, when you signed. 
in layman's terms, if the duck, if if the, there's a duck club that is part of an easement, that duck club is privately owned by a, me, a group of members. They can't go in if they're in a me, uh, an easement for 50 years. They can't go in and say we're going to make that flooded corn next year. They have to keep it natural. And then there's other duck clubs in that same general vicinity that might not be on an easement that can say, I'm going to make this flooded corn. Okay. Well, no, that, let me, let me, uh, Chairman, um, they're in an easement. But again, like I was mentioning, the contracts are negotiated. So, for instance, I have a 100-acre piece of ground. I want to put an easement on it. I can go in with the feds and I can say, um, I'm taking 10 acres out of the easement and I only want to put uh, easement on 90 acres. So then I can do my corn plots, my food plots, whatever I would like on that 10 acres, but I can't do that on the 90. The 90 is protected. Yeah. You know, which means they get funding for 90 acres and not the 100. You know, so those are decisions that have to be made. But Rock's absolutely right. It's all negotiated. And once you sign, you cannot change it. You know, you can't say all of a sudden one day say, you know what? I've made some money somewhere else. I think I'll buy that back, you know, and use that land differently. Can't do it. That's that's uh, in most instances, either a number of years or perpetuity. Yancey, when you hear about Arkansas, Stuttgart, the duck capital of the world, you automatically think flooded timber. You go to Arkansas, it's a big time rice production area, probably the second largest in the country, probably right behind California, top three or four or five in the world with China and, and Asia, California, um, lots of ducks in that area. It's a funnel that comes down from the Mississippi flyway to where it starts out real vast and wide at the top and kind of funnels down with this river system that kind of evacuates itself into the Grand Prairie. Um, how would you describe the Butte Sink, like I just described Arkansas. What is the description of the Butte Sink? Is it a funnel that leads to that area? Why did it become so popular for these historic duck clubs to be in that general area of what is called the Butte Sink? Well, the Butte Sink is especially unique in the Western United States, you know, beyond that central area, like you mentioned, Arkansas. And the thing that makes the Butte Sink unique is the trees. You know, uh, you just don't find uh, a mass of trees anywhere else in California on wetlands. You'll find some willows, you know, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, but it's the trees. And the Buttes themselves, the smallest uh, mountain range in the world, are the, the Sutter Buttes right next to the Buttes. And they serve as a beacon for waterfowl. Those waterfowl have been becoming for tens of thousands of years to that location because of those buttes. They find them. And it is an actual sink where the water funnels into, goes underneath the ground, comes up somewhere else at a different time. You know, uh, when uh, the butte sink first started being hunted, uh, it, was, it was hunted for subsistence and then for market hunting. And then as uh, mostly men at the time uh, gained some wealth and, and had more leisure time, they started building private duck clubs. And when they went in there, it was very, it was riparian in nature. It wasn't this big flooded area. It was small creeks in the Butte Creek itself going through there. And so um, 
you know, they couldn't really start hunting except some very few locations that had more water until it started raining. And in California, it doesn't rain, you know, in the summertime or the fall. It doesn't rain until wintertime, usually mid to late <coughs> November it starts. So a lot of those duck clubs couldn't even hunt until December or later. So uniquely what happened is a new crop came to California in 1912, rice, right? And uh, rice, of course, is grown in water. And what do you do with that water when you want to harvest that rice? You have to get rid of it somehow. So the rice farmers started sending it down into the Butte sink. And all of a sudden, these clubs just started expanding and growing because they had this incredible supply of water. But it was an irony because this water often would flood them out or, or it would, didn't come at a dependable time. So in 1922, an agreement was made called the 1922 Agreement, where a reciprocal arrangement was made where rice growers promised to send their water to the Butte Sink at a certain time. And the clubs themselves promised to take that water at a certain time. And so that solved that dilemma. So once you've got the water, you know, you can grow the types of plants that you want to grow, the foods for the ducks. You can grow more and more trees, different types of trees, all of the willows. Mostly what they had down there at that time were oak trees. So now you have the oaks and a variety, three or four different types of willows. And uh, the trees in the Butte Sink, uh, it's, not, it's not like the thick growth that you see in Arkansas in either the green timber or the dead timber. You know, where it's just trees right next to each other, one after the other. But we have a lot of trees. And it's the, again, it's the only place in California that does. And that combined with, with guaranteed water, with, with the different types of duck food that they have in there, which is primarily smart weed and water grass. Some few places that are not in easement uh, have corn. But most of the clubs in the Butte Sink are in easement, which means they're always going to be there. The waterfowl will always have a place to come. Rocky, when you hear Yancey talk about that 1922 act of the water, the rice crops coming, the water being sent down to this sink where it gathers up, <clears throat> giving them the ability to grow more down there as far as trees or willows or habitat. I love the description of the, the Butte Sink Mountain. I never even thought of that as a beacon. I mean, that's literally like the Pacific Flyway. They see that and they're like, we're home, right? We're eating. Um, when you hear Yancey talk about that water being sent down there from these rice growers to get it off of the crop, to let it dry out, to let the combines get on there, whatever they were using for you know, farming practices back in the 20s and 30s, to harvest the rice. But now it's different, right? Like, I assume, Yancey and Rocky, you, Yancey, you talk on this after Rock, but back in that day, there wasn't all of this flooded rice for the ducks to sit on because the, they were being evacuated to harvest the rice and then they would burn it off. But now they don't burn it off and now there's a lot more ducks spread out north of the Butte Sink, I assume, because there's so much food with the flooded rice. Is what I'm saying making sense? You know what I'm saying, Rock? Now, all of that, all of that water still goes to the Butte Sink, I'm sure, but a lot of it stays on the rice now because these farmers are making a subsidiary income by leasing out a lot of their cropland to duck hunters like us and, and people like us. My question is, is like, does that 
make the butte sink weaker today because the ducks don't really get there with that still being the beacon of the Sutter Butte mountain range because there's so much food up here? Or is the habitat so good in the butte sink that the ducks can't resist it? Oh, no. The, the rice dries down. We, we pull the water like around. We start pulling uh, water in the rice fields around the, you know, September 1 and August through September. Um, harvest usually wraps up, uh, you know, on a normal year around the 20th or November 1, 20th of October, November 1. And then the rice farmers begin to reflood. And that takes time to flood them back up. Well, the migration out of Canada, um, we'll start seeing our first pintail arrive, um, as Mr. Gurry told you yes, the other day. Uh, we started seeing our first pintail the first week of September, okay? Um, we start seeing our first speckle bellies around October 3rd. So in between that first week of September and, and October 3rd, the migrations begin. Well, the sink um, and other uh, riparian duck clubs, you know, in the valley, they start their flood up. Uh, they start their flood up around the same time period. The refuges are flooding up, um, you know, and so we have Mr. Hoffman at Ranch Westquan, um, he always wanted at least a third of the ranch flooded up fully by September 7th. And that starts imprinting the ducks in there for the rest of the season. So, and that's what has happened in the sink for, you know, like Nancy said, for tens of thousands of years, there was water down there because the ag land was dry. So they would go down there. That's their staging spot. They um, find that as home up until uh, duck season starts around the 23rd of October. Um, but they're still there. And then you have the refuge systems in there and the closed zones and so forth. So the ducks start shifting a little bit inside the sink, you know, to their resting areas and their loafing areas and their feeding areas. And then around the first two weeks of November, the rice fields start sheeting out with flooded water. And then the ducks will leave the riparian, go out and feed at night, and then come back in that month of November. It's not till December that when those ducks truly start spreading out when the rains come, uh, you know, here when winter starts, that's when, that's when like, as you see, the cloud covers hit, that's when they leave the riparian and the trees and they start pegging out in the rice fields where um, there's areas where there's not pressure. They'll start resting out there. But as soon as the sun comes back, and it warms up, they do go back to the sink. They want to be underneath those trees, in those tule ponds, and so forth. They're natural. You know, one of the there's one of the really unique and important values of having that rice there, and uh, you know some of the changes that have happened. You know, I think when when we have adequate water, I think Rock, we're what four hundred fifty thousand acres of rice in this in this valley approximately yeah we're down to we're, we're now down to about five hundred thousand planted acres of rice fully i think in the winter time we plant i think now we're probably flooding up on average 375 today 
to, to the 400? Well, what happens is, you know, not only does it provide more places, of course, where duck hunters can hunt and, and uh, these ranchers and these farmers can receive additional income from all that, but some of the real value is that it's a, it's a significant food source for the ducks. Now, this is after harvest. And this is what we call, you know, waste grain and what the harvesters don't pick up. Initially, it was pretty significant. And, and Rock, what is it, about 1% now maybe? But, oh, yeah, if you drop a sack, sack and a half an acre, that's... But nonetheless, big. it's important food uh, for the ducks. So now, through the research uh, that's been done through California waterfowl, uh, we've been able to document that birds are going back to Canada, uh, Alaska, and the Yukon with about 25% more body fat. They've got that food that they need. The other thing that's really neat about it is when you plant duck food, you know, you want to be thinking about that, that food becoming available to those birds sequentially. You know, you've, you've got rice, you've got water grass, you've got smartweed, you've got a variety of other things that are of lesser value, but and now we have some corn in the area and we have some milo and so on and so forth. But the smart duck managers are those that will plan a sequence of food and it works beautifully. And then of course, you know, in the late winter and the early spring, you know, they transition to, they need, uh, you know, carbohydrates during the winter, but in that spring they need that protein, they need those insects, those invertebrates and uh, to help build up all the uh, 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 needs that we're going to have to migrate back to the north. What is the main reason why there's not as many mallards in California today as there were 10 years ago, 15 years ago? Rock. Well, it's not one reason. Um, we would like to say it's one reason, but um, it was there was a storm hit all at once. Okay. And, um, you had, uh, uh, nut prices, uh, almonds and walnuts went up. They became profitable. We expanded, uh, tree production on the West side of the Valley along the foothills. Um, we took a lot of, uh, wheat and ground that was normally grown wheat and oats and so forth. Uh, field crops uh, that was really good nesting habitat for the mallard um, that came out of those crops grain crops and went into trees um, and at the same time um, we were uh, having the water wars we should you know just a broad swipe of the brush up in the northeastern California up around Klamath Tule Lake um, and a lot of that water um, was pulled out of that refuge system in those marshlands up there uh, for the the river, the Klamath River, to go down for the fish. Uh, so at that same time, about the beginning of 2000, late 90s, that was all hitting both of those uh, parts. And, um, and we'll go into it, and Yancey's really knowledgeable on the Klamath. But um, when we lost our nesting habitat, then um, we were losing our brood and molting water up in Northeastern. The, uh, we 
we we were we were we were up about five hundred thousand um, uh, uh, breeding pairs, and um, and in twenty years we're down to what half that half that yeah, yeah we're like at two twenty nine now you know I think last year um, we're on a ten percent decline right now every year because more ground is going into trees. Um, our birds that are hatching in the Sassoon Marsh and in the valley are going up to Klamath uh, and Tule Lake to molt. Um, and when they get up there, there's not enough water. And so as you saw with the botulism outbreaks, um, we're losing them up there and uh, to botulism and, and predation. What do you think, Yancy? Well, uh, Rock's absolutely accurate on, on all of that. You know, we've lost a lot of our nesting habitat in California. I'm, I understand a figure we're losing something in this valley, something like 5,000 acres a year to trees. And once something, uh, once trees are planted, it will never go back to habitat. You know, if you have rice, it might go into some other row crop or whatever and come back to rice at some time. But once it goes into trees, it will stay in trees forever. And you bring up the other important point, which is uh, uh, northeastern California, the Klamath Basin. And that's a, boy, I, I tell you, that's, I think that's the most important thing to discuss about what's happening uh, in, in the entire Pacific Flyway, but uh, specifically California, is that's our, you know, where, we're, where we are and where we're most interested, of course. But the Klamath Basin, uh, you know, it, it, interestingly, it was the first waterfowl refuge in, uh, in the nation. Uh, the uh, Klamath area up there, you have six, uh, there's a federal uh, system there with six refuges in it. But Lower Klamath Marsh itself was the first waterfowl refuge. And it was declared in 1908 by uh, President Roosevelt. And when this happened, there was no thought that there would never be, you know, that there'd ever be a water problem up there because there were some 300,000 acres of wetlands at the time. So it, the water was not adjudicated. And uh, over time, through a variety of things, but primarily what's known as the Klamath Project, which was the uh, process for getting water to the new agricultural, growing agricultural community up there. Um, it, it, it took more and more land uh, out of wetlands and into farming production and used the water in a different way. And the need was there because we had uh, uh, so many more people coming to that area. They needed to be able to make a living. Uh, they had a background in agriculture. They had an interest in raising their families there. And there were two time periods where a significant number of people came in there uh, to join the farming community. And that was after World War I and World War II. And uh, lands were made available for those people that qualified for it at extremely reduced prices or no prices at all. And so the, uh, the, the need of water, you know, we had too many straws in the glass and the need for water uh, uh, grew exponentially. And um, so we started having problems up there, and, and the result was in those time periods where there were problems, 
there would be fewer and fewer uh, birds bred in that area and, and coming down to California to join the birds that were bred down here. More recently, in, a, in the year 2000, we had a horrible situation that happened in the main water source for the Klamath Basin, which is the Klamath River. And we lost some 70,000 salmon, silver salmon, in the Klamath River. The salmon are essential to the native tribes in that area. It's their main food source. It's part of their culture. And so uh, also uh, at uh, the northern end of that river system in what's known as Upper Klamath Lake, there were two suckers that were uh, endangered up there as well, the short-nosed sucker and the Klamath River sucker. And those fish also are important uh, to the tribes uh, it's a main food source for them. It's used ceremonially. And what happened was the federal government came in when this water uh, reduction happened, and uh, the Endangered Species Act was put into place. So the first priority for water is creatures under the Endangered Species Act in the Klamath Basin. The second priority goes to agriculture. There's virtually no priority for the refuges up there. At different times in this, this summer, uh, 2020, uh, it, it, we, we found ourselves in a horrible drought. And what came about after that, or as a result of that, was a horrible botulism uh, uh, implementation that came in. It was just, it was just horrible. We lost 60,000 birds this year. We're in drought again. We think that it's probably even gonna be worse next year. You know, you used the analogy when you were talking about an Arkansas like this in that central point. Well, in the, in the uh, Pacific Flyway, I'd use the same analogy, you know, thinking about an hourglass. You have the whole flyway above, you come down to this, the narrow part where the sand sifts through slowly. That's the Klamath Basin. And then it opens back up again down below uh, in California. It is without question the most important spot in the entire Pacific Flyway. In fact, I'd say it's the most critical wetlands issue in all of North America right now. So the Klamath Task Force, a part of the California uh, Waterfowl Association, has joined together in their efforts uh, to be able to acquire water rights and, and be able to send additional water to the Klamath Basin. And they're, they're going to succeed at that. They've made great progress, and it will make all the difference in the world. Without it, we'll see tremendous changes in, in uh, waterfowl and wetlands in California. So we're working hard, we're keeping our fingers crossed, and we think we're going to be successful. When you start thinking about the amount of waterfowl that come to the area, what kind of numbers are we talking? Are we talking as many as any other state in the country? Are we talking a million visit this state a year? What, what kind of numbers of actual ducks and geese migrate to California? The documented numbers are about six and a half million uh, ducks and geese annually. in total annually, including the, the local birds and the migrating birds. It's about six and a half million at the height of the migration in, you know, in midwinter. Interestingly, uh, the figures that come out of that Klamath Basin uh, now these are estimated. They didn't have. They did not have the way of gathering data at, at 
you know, in 1900 that they do today, they estimate that there were perhaps 40 million birds that used the Klamath Basin, you know, 120, 130 years ago. 40 million. And, uh, you know, some six, six and a half million birds come through there now. 40 million. Yeah, pretty amazing. So six and a half million rock is 90% of that specs now? Is this becoming a goose state? <laughs> <laughs> it sure feels, well, let's just say speckle bellies and pintail, you know, is, is mainly what we see, um, you know, and, uh, you know, as well as working on the Klamath, uh, which uh, the task force, like Yancey said, is making some amazing, uh, we're gaining ground there. Um, we also um, are addressing the pintail issues, you know, that we have in this state. Um, we have an abundance of pintail, as you see when you're out hunting. Um, you know, and I think that in the flyways, we hold the majority of the pintail use the Pacific flyway. Significant. I mean, or I would, I mean, I, I don't know the actual, I mean, I think we're still gathering information on exactly what the pintail, you know, with our telemetry tracking now on them. Um, but it, it appears that like 80% of the pintail, I would think, use the Pacific Flyway. Oh, at a minimum. At you know, minimum. There, there's very few states that really harvest pintails. Arkansas, you got, Louisiana. You know, you have California, Texas. Arkansas, uh, Louisiana, Texas, you know, the rice growing states. Less water in Texas. They're growing less rice there now. It's my understanding. You know, but still, California is the main state. So a lot of the work in trying to determine future harvest regulations for pintail is taking place right here in California. And um, in fact, uh, there's consideration uh, with Federal Fish and Wildlife Service right now to think about trying to determine once and for all whether you know, hunting is, is, is additive or not. Is it adding to the loss of this endangered bird? You know, and, and I don't mean legally endangered, but I mean that their population is, seems to be barely steady or losing some each year. <laughs> so anyways, what they're thinking of doing, and, and it's being based on research and, uh, that they're doing in California and data that they're gathering and everything is for uh, a, perhaps a five-year trial to consider a three-bird uh, uh, harvest regulation per day here in California as opposed to the one or two that we experience now. And um, what they'll do is they'll, they'll try this, and uh, if they determine, you know, that the hunting is additive, it'll probably stay at one or two birds forever. But if it's not, uh, their consideration is to go to three birds. By when? Huh? By when? I, I think that, uh, that that's a determination they could make in the next year or two. So when you start talking about hunting being an additive, yeah, see, if you look at it like this, Arkansas and Louisiana, Arkansas is the number one mallard harvest state in the country annually. Louisiana is always in the top three or four for total waterfowl harvested annually state by state. California, I think I've heard, is number one or number two for duck hunters in the field. Yeah. Is that true? Like, so it's, my question is, if Arkansas has a four mallard limit, but they have all the mallards in the Mississippi flyway, but you can only kill that many, 
And then out here, you have a seven duck limit. You could kill seven greenheads a day out here legally for 105 days. Is it because there's not as many hunters chase them? We just said that California is the number one leading hunters in the field annually. Why are we allowed to kill seven greenheads out here when Arkansas has way more greenheads than we do, mallards, and they can only harvest four per day? Well, there's, there's, there's something called here called the, the California mallard model. And it took about 10 years of research to determine this. And we were able to document that we have about 400,000 breeding pairs of mallards uh, in California. And so uh, that's a lot more than Arkansas has got. And they have a, I mean, they have a great mallard habitat there. And they, I mean, that's the premier bird in, in Arkansas. And it's, I mean, their whole culture is based on the mallard, of course. <laughs> but in California, we have some unique things happening too. Uh, and again, when we have a lot of, when we have the water that we need here, we have a great breeding population. And so, you know, again, the federal government came in with our state uh, biologist and we're able to determine that we could sustain this based on the number of birds that are bred here in the state. Oh, so it's locals. Yeah. yeah. Local. And the other thing I wanted to mention to you is you, you asked, you know, you inferred that, you know, you wanted to know about the, the harvest here in California. It's about a million and a quarter birds. It's a lot. It's a lot. It's not the top. But it's close to the top. I think it comes we, in. I think it comes in second or third. So we're, we, well, yeah. we've been we've been number two. We've been number three. <laughs> we will bounce back and forth. Okay, um, and so, and that's you know that's gone on for you know since I remember A been hunting time. since reading yeah. you know the DU magazines and you know seeing the graphs and so forth. So, um, so six but, and a half million birds live here. And a million and a half of those six and a half million die? Six and a half are here at the top of the migration, which means the birds we raise and the, the, you know, the birds come through migration. But a million and a half, I had no idea it was that high. A million and a quarter. And that includes geese? A million and a quarter. That includes geese, yeah. though? Yes. Yes, it does. So, but you know what? It hasn't been until recently that we've been harvesting a lot of geese. There's been a pretty pretty average sustained number of geese. That have Why been are you allowed to year? kill 10 specks here and you can only kill two or three in Arkansas when there's a lot of specks over there too? Yeah. Why, why is, why can we? Well, it, it, it's, it's, I mean, that's an, that's an easy answer. It's based on, on a, on a, a nationwide. Yeah. No, it's based on a nationwide uh, model. So we have a, we have a statewide model for our mallards here. We're trying to get a statewide model for sprig. And I want to. I, don't know, I want to tell you something else. Why that's that's a reasonable thing to request, but everything else is based on a national model. It was called the Adaptive Harvest Management Plan, and when they established that, mm -hmm. it um, it was and they established the Flyway Conference or the I mean, which the the four flyways would come together x amount of times out of the year and. All their numbers within their breeding grounds would be collected, and and they would go over and and then um, like in our state, we have our meeting. When is our rules and regs meeting? Well, we meet twice a year. We meet about this time of year, working on the goose, and these are recommendations to the the State Department uh, of Fish and Game. Uh, we meet about this time of year for the for the. Uh, 
geese, and then we meet in August to develop a recommendation to go forward to uh, California Fish and Game for the ducks. And so we'll meet with the we'll meet with the top biologists. They'll come in and and they will um, you know they'll give us the bee pop numbers, the bird populations. Um, they will the biologists will you know this is where you were at last year. This is where you were at two years ago. They'll have the graphs up there, and then there is a committee that will, um, you know, look at the data, and then they'll vote, you know, within CWA what we recommend, you know, and then <clears throat> we'll work with Fish and Game, and then we'll submit that, and then that will be packaged up with the state and what uh, the conservation organizations recommend, and it'll be given to the feds, and then the feds will look at it, and then they'll make their final determination of, you know, the season length, the, the um, bag limits, et cetera. Um, and it's not just a, it's just not a broad picture. Uh, within that, you have like the, um, the special, uh, the conservation honker season, Canada goose season that we hunted on on October 3rd. That's a five-day season, okay, to try to, um, you know, help lower that local population that's that's growing, you know, it's expanding, you know, every year it gets larger and larger. Um, then there are our, um, our uh, late season spec and snow goose hunts, you know, um, that they have in, you know, I think they're going on in all the flyways now. Um, so we'll look at that, you know, and then we'll look at the, the branch season, you know, that we, you know, discussed yesterday in the blind. That's a, was that a one month season? I think that's it's, in the, it's a four week season, four, uh, two bird a day. Two bird a day. And they'll look at that. And I remember I thought it, there, there was one time where it was a two week season. Okay. Um, and then they'll look some years. I, I think that there was today, uh, there were a couple years there that we recommended there was no redheads. They were so low, I think. And then, um, and then the population started coming back. Um, so, but wait a minute. So you just said is specs federally, man. Is fe that that's set federally? It's just like Sprigar. So if there's that many specs in California, and you can kill seven or eight more than any other state in the c country, and there's way more sprig here than at least forty-seven out of the fifty states in the country, why can? Why is it set federally? Is it because of the breeding grounds and that the sprig are in trouble and the specs aren't? Why can we only kill one sprig in California <coughs> set federally as you can in Nevada or North Dakota when you could literally walk across sprig in most of the rice paddies in California? There's that many of them well, here. That, that, I, I'm going to go back again to the fact that the, the uh, Federal Fish and Wildlife Service is considering a special model you know, to but why did it go down, Yancey? Because wasn't it here three? Wasn't it three birds? I mean, I know it was seven back in the day. Hey, but it was when I started hunting, it was ten. It was ten sprig. You know, you got bonus birds, and and there were so many sprig that sprig were considered bonus birds. And then it went. It, it was seven for a minute, and then well, it was it, three. It was four. You know, got down extremely low. But <laughs> um, the other thing I wanted to share with you about California sprig is we have a unique uh, population in Alaska and the Yukon. They only come to the Pacific uh, Flyway and only the Pacific Coast, and they and they winter in California. Now, you know we all know that the habitat for sprig is being reduced dramatically all the time, 
And that's the reason. It's deter- I think it's, it's most biologists would agree that that's the reason that, you know, we are, we're losing this, you know, our, our battle with Sprig is the fact that the popu- you know, the habitat is, is, is being destroyed or, or we're losing the water that they're needed in southern Canada and so on and so forth because so much land is being converted to agriculture. The birds are flying further north to breed. They're not as successful flying further north. Now, our birds in California come primarily from Alberta, some from Saskatchewan, but we also have a unique population most people outside of the Pacific Flyway are not aware of that come from Alaska and, um, and the Yukon. That habitat is perfect. That habitat will never change. Those birds will always be there. And that's what augments our flight into California. Um, you know, we have more sprig, dramatically more sprig than anywhere else. And uh, the Pacific Flyway has more specks, especially, uh, you know, California during the winter. They come down here to migrate. So it's, a, it's an issue of they're eating themselves out of house and home. The population has to be controlled. And frequently, a uh, population of waterfowl is controlled by uh, providing additional opportunities for harvest, whether it's during the season, 10 birds that we have here in most of, not all of California, but most of California, or, or late seasons. We have a, a five-day late spec season in California also. I love when you say additional opportunities because when I think about California, and I've hunted in a lot of places in this country, um, there's a lot of cool things that could happen. You could see the northern lights in Canada, which isn't in this country, but in this, you know, in this continent, it's North America, and the northern lights are really rad. You could be in northern, you know, you could be offshore in the eastern, you know, the the Chesapeake Bay, and you might see the lights of Baltimore. You might see a really cool bridge. You might, there's a lot of cool things that you see hunting ducks and geese and wildlife in this country. You could be up in the Puget Sound and, you know, see Seattle, or you might, there's a lot of cool things, Yancey and Rock, but when you're in California, there is a ton of this going on from the Salton Sea to the coast. Um, you could come into the Sacramento River and you could chase ducks on the river. You could be in the grasslands of Los Banos and see a lot of cool things on the 99 corridor from, from Stockton down to Fresno and, and, and further south than that. Um, but what I really think is, is vast about this area is all of those opportunities and additional opportunities you talk about, it's never the same. You, you could be in a rice pit, a pit blind and a rice check. You could be in Buckbrush in the Butte Sink. You could be in a flood, a, a river that's out of its bank and flooded timber on the Sacramento River. You could be in the grasslands, like I said, in Los Banos. There's, there's so many different things. And then yesterday finds us looking literally at San Francisco, the, the city that is, I don't know if it's against hunting, but it's not really known for hunting, that whole area of California. And there's tons of hunting going on around the Golden Gate Bridge and the Bay Bridge and the different inlets and the, and the, and the, the, I guess you would call them bays. There's a lot of different bays around San Francisco Bay. But yesterday we are shooting canvas backs, which is maybe the most sought after duck. I don't know if the it is. The king of ducks. The king of ducks, right, yeah, Nancy? Yeah. I love yeah. mallards, but I think that in the pintail is very sought after, you know, people come to California for that, but the can is the duck. And yesterday we were having a field day with them. Like when that <coughs> wind came up, before we get into the actual specifics of the hunt, 
we are in San Francisco. We're literally in the Bay Area that's known for Fisherman's Wharf, offshore fishing, clam chowder, the San Francisco 49ers, the Giants, great Italian restaurants. Um, there's so, you know, the, the Golden Gate Bridge, the, there's so much that San Francisco's known about, but hunting is not one of them, in my opinion, well, that you, you don't hear about. You know, uh, interestingly, you bring it up, you know, in that respect, but, you know, hunting in California started in the San Francisco Bay. Really? You know, uh, and before it became a state, but, by, you know, in 1850, when it, when it became a state, um, you know, there, subsistence hunting was going on. And market hunted followed that. And where did that market hunting take place? All the different bays in San Francisco area, including the Sassoon Marsh. That's where your market hunters worked. And uh, it wasn't until, you know, uh, uh, people uh, became successful business people and they, they had uh, more income and they had more leisure time that sport hunting, you know, took a hold for waterfowl in California. But it all began in the San Francisco Bay. No way. Yeah, really. And interesting, most people don't know, but when you look at California historically for the hunting areas, Virtually every major area in California had its unique hunting, you know, from the northeast and the northwest and working your way down the whole Central Valley, below Sacramento, which is the midpoint in the Sacramento Valley. You have all the grasslands going all the way down. And, uh, of course, the Salton Sea way down in the very southeast corner. And people think about all this and they go, oh, that's it. You know, that's where all the hunting was. No. And this will blow your mind. Coastal Southern California, you know, in the, LA, in the L.A. area, all the way down to San Diego, and a little bit north, probably from Ventura down, massive number of duck clubs originally, you know, from about 1880 up to about 1920. And the hunting was absolutely phenomenal, mostly in the coastal area, inland areas too, you know, you mentioned the San Jacinto Valley, still great hunting there, but mostly on the coastal area. Now, people lived in the cities at that time. They, they, they didn't want to live on the coast because there were no, you know, there, there was nothing, uh, there was no way to get back into the city. There was no transportation at that time that could take them out there or bring them back into the city. So the only thing they did on the coastal area initially was they did farming, and then the duck clubs were a natural addition to that. They had so much artesian water at the time that they didn't need to import any, any water for these duck clubs. It was right there on their properties. And they grew wheat, barley, and products like that. The duck and goose hunting was phenomenal. And uh, about 1920, it started changing, and uh, those clubs one by one started closing and, and, you know, started developing into other types and, and neighborhoods started going on and everything. But a lot of that was related to what caused the changes for the average guy in duck hunting in California in general. And that was the advent of the railroads. You know, in, in the late 60s, 1860s, the railroads allowed people to be able to access other areas in California. And of course, that was followed later in the teens and 20s uh, with the automobile. But, uh, you know, a private railroad was run out 
uh, uh, you know, to this coastal area in Southern California from downtown L.A. That's how some of some of the wealthy gentlemen that hunted out there got out there. Uh, a private railroad was run uh, by the Spreckles family uh, into the Moss Landing area one time to access their club just for the Spreckles family and their guest. So, you know, these aspects of transportation were huge in accessing uh, hunting for the average guy in California. Uh, but the main thing I was trying to share with you is how prolific the hunting was in Southern California. You know, you think of Southern California, you think of Los Angeles, you think of Hollywood, you know, uh, places like that. But the whole coastal area had phenomenal hunting, including San Diego, all the way down to the border. They had great hunting on the coast, great brand hunting. You talk about brand, but inland they had a, a series of reservoirs, and it was all great hunting. And this, uh, yeah, um, hey, let me let me tell you one more example. The University of California is in an area called Irvine. They had duck hunting there on campus. There were clubs on campus until uh, 1979. And uh, an incident happened where uh, students didn't want the duck ant hunting to happen there, you know. Uh, and they came out with sheets and were waving them and so on and so forth. And, it, you know, it, it, the, the clubs that were there realized it was time. They were going to have to go ahead and sell that land to the university and move on and do some other, you know, do their hunting elsewhere. But the, the diversity of hunting areas and types of hunting that took place in California was it was fabulous, you know. And, and the interesting thing is here we've got this state again with these 40 million people, and every section still has hunting. Some areas a lot more accessible, a lot more available, uh, uh, a, a lot more prolific in the number of birds and, and, and the ability for hunters to access it and everything. The most prolific, of course, is still the Sacramento Valley and the grasslands and probably the Sassoon Marsh and a bit of the Delta. But, um, you know, it was just diverse. It was prolific. And it was part of the culture of California. You know, the environmental, the social, the, the, the uh, economic, uh, value of duck hunting was amazing and you can't talk about California without talking about the importance of of waterfowl hunting initially you know over time there have been I think uh, the documented number is something like uh, 2600 clubs over time in California at this time we have approximately a thousand active clubs in California in 2021, a thousand active clubs in a state of 40 million people. It's, it's absolutely amazing. It's staggering to think that the hunting is still as good as it is in California. Rocky, when you hear Yancey talk like that, the diversification of um, the hunting here, and you are born and raised here, multi-generations of this part of California. Um, yesterday, I think you said you had never hunted where we hunted yesterday. We had a guy on our team yesterday, Ty said, Ty's been, you know, he's hunted Arkansas, he's hunted Oklahoma, he's hunted Texas, he's hunted all of it. He goes, that's my favorite I've ever seen. 
okay, he's just filming. And he's like, that's the coolest I've ever seen. And we weren't in a ducky area. Like you wouldn't go out there and be like, oh, this is ducky area. But I want you to touch on what you were feeling yesterday of that boat ride out into the bay, the lights of the bridges and the cities and the, you know, everything that goes on in that part of the country. There's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of importation that comes in there, you know, through the ports and, and a lot of, uh, there's a lot of work going on in that area. Yeah. And we're out there literally in a duck hunt on a duck blind on stilts in the San Francisco Bay shooting canvas backs like they're, they're, they were decoying. I mean, it was right. A lot of cans. And then I want you to talk, Yancey, a little bit about where we were in like CWA's participation in projects that have ensured that, you know, that duck hunting is still available in that area because it has dwindled. I imagine it has with the growth of that area. But what were you thinking, Rock, when that was going on? Well, it was, you know, it was like being out there, um, you know, it got, it was a little emotional uh, due to the fact that all the stories that I've heard, um, you know, growing up in my family, waterfowling, um, knowing that, you know, as Yancey said, it, it kind of all started there, you know, hearing about, you know, the market hunting that occurred in the marsh and the market hunting that occurred here and where and all those birds were being taken to the city to feed the folks that were living there. They wanted wild duck in the Chinese restaurants and so forth. Well, I mean, it was just a cultural phenomenon at, at the time throughout the nation. These restaurants, people wanted to eat wildfowl and the restaurants and, and uh, hotels served a lot of waterfowl. And so when I was sitting out there and knowing that I was in a fifth generation stand-up line, knowing the history of that line, um, and, and being there and and just kind of trying to imagine what it looked like, you know, in 1920. You know, here I am at the at the base of Marin, you know, in the San Francisco Bay area there, and looking at that area. Um, you know, and, and, and when you're out there, if you look at what was behind us, it's marsh. I mean, it is, you know, there's widgeon, there was pintail, there were mallards, there were teal, there were the cans, um, there was, you know, Canada geese. Um, it was just, it was just a, it was just a awesome experience. It smelled good. It felt good. It was relaxing. Um, the birds late season were responding to the call into the decoys. I mean, seeing, you know, ducks give it up in the decoys with five days left of the season, um, you know, you just, it was just a, it was a, it was an awesome experience. We were with good people, um, you know, as we both experienced, um, you know, I have never met Matt, you've never met Matt. Um, and, you know, the, when we got together, um, it was like we were hunting with a friend of ours from grade school. You know, we, we were sharing stories. We were, you know, doing what we normally do. We were joking around and he jumped right in with us. And, you know, you know, it was, it was exciting. We were sharing pictures and, you know, immediately. And, um, I don't know. It was just, it was, uh, it just took me back to the stories that I was told as a young boy um, the pictures that I saw in Field and Stream and Outdoor Life, 
of those hunters in the bay and those boats like we rode out in, um, the stand-up blind, the waves with the cans, you know, doing that figure eight and giving them up. Um, it was it was cool. Would you uh, do it again? Oh, heck yeah. I'm doing it again with them next year. We should have did it today. I'll probably do it more. <laughs> should have done it. I, I mean... I'm going to give some credit here, if I could, for a second. Yeah. Uh, you know, that, that gentleman that took us out there, Matt Roof, uh, is part of that five generations of family that's out there. And and when I mentioned that uh, Chad Building and Rock Merlot were looking for a great new place to experience some, some unique hunting and so on and so forth, he was so excited about spending a day with you two guys. I'm just patting you on the back a little bit you know, that he jumped at the opportunity and, and took a day off of work and, and just, remember he just, all of a sudden here's this package of these incredible ribs to eat and everything, you know, cause was cool, that's man. part of the tradition in a stand in those stilt blinds is, is to either cook a nice breakfast or, you know, to have a nice uh, lunch out there or something like that. But, uh, it was really uh, very generous of him and thoughtful, but it's because he wanted to spend time with, with you two guys that are, Pretty known nationally, you know, and uh, uh, he, he it, it was a grand experience for him, too. He was cool. Yancey, when you start thinking about who you're talking about right now, you're talking about people that are literally 30 years younger than you to 25 years younger than you. Why do you hang out with us? Do you have anything in common with us with being... 25 to 30 years older does duck hunting keep you young because you're 76 years old and you shoot like you're 15 you're excited like you're eight in your first duck hunt like a kid in a candy store you're optimistic about duck hunting as much as any human being i've ever seen then you're hunting with guys that are in their in their early 50s and my mid 40s how do you adapt? How do people get along and have so much in common right away? Like Rocky said, it felt like we've known Matt, like we'd been in high school with him and we had just met him yesterday morning and we were ribbing each other by 8 a.m. Why is hunting do that? And how are you doing it at 76 years old and hanging out with people that are nowhere, you know, we're 25 to 30 years younger than you? Well, I mean, obviously, I mean, we're like-minded people. You know, Waterfowling, if not, you know, other than our families and our health and all that, waterfowling is, it's our life. You know, it's its the thing that uh, we look forward to every single day. And even when the season is not on, you know, we're thinking about it and we're planning and so on and so forth. And that that same like-mindedness or, you know, is part of, of who we are. It's, it's the thing that allows us uh, uh, to, to be together and, and to want to, you know, have that experience together and so on and so forth. I've always felt that, you know, in our DNA, we are hunter gatherers and different people get tapped into at different times. I was, you know, my DNA was tapped into when I was about four years old, walking behind my father in a field while, while he hunted. And uh, out of all the different things that we hunt, there's something so special and unique about waterfowl. And, and it, it captures our imaginations and, and gives us the, the sense of, 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 of anticipation and excitement that makes us, you know, want to get up in the morning and go out there and everything. But 
it's so common to all of us. We have the same sense of excitement and pleasure and anticipation. It's, it's such a unique sport in, in that way. And uh, uh, I don't see any differences. When we're on the blind, I don't see any difference between a 14-year-old and a 76-year-old. We're all experiencing exactly the same thing. And you know what else we all are that's in common among us? We're conservationists. We are the people that have assured that we'll always have wetlands in, in North America, that we'll always have waterfowl in North America, and that we'll always be able to hunt them. You know, we are the people that will assure that. But the other side of that coin is our responsibility uh, to make sure uh, that, the, that the birds always have everything that they need and, and that they have times to be away where they can be protected, places they can be protected, harvest regulations, season re regulations. We're the people, especially starting in the 1930s in, this, in North America, we're the people that made sure that those regulations came in. That's, you know, that was the time and period. What brought it on, of course, was the culminating thing to seeing we were starting to lose our populations of waterfowl was the, uh, was the Dust Bowl. And out of that came a lot of the regulations that were very modern at the time, but you know, we grew up with them and we don't, we don't see them as being unique in any way or anything. They were important. And those waterfowlers themselves, duck hunters themselves, are the ones that went to the state and federal governments and insisted on us uh, uh, finding ways to protect waterfowl and to assure that they'd always be with us. Rocky, when you hear Yancey talk about age and conservation and hunters gatherers, habitat, the heart of a hunter, the compassion that we have for these animals that we pursue, harvest, butcher, process, eat, sustainability, coming full circle and living off of the land. <clears throat> and then you also mentioned before Yancey just talked, Rock Merlot, that you were, it was a little emotional yesterday. Growing up as a kid, field and stream, outdoor life, pictures, market hunting, gunners, skull boats, whatever they were doing in the bay to harvest the divers, the canvasbacks, the puddle ducks, the mallards, the sprig, the widgeons. What would Larry say? Your dad, Larry, in that blind yesterday, with Yancey, I assume they're about the same age. Yep. I don't know how old Larry would be now, but he'd be close to Yancey's age, somewhere in there. What would Larry say about, like, would he be like, what in the frick are we doing out here? There's no habitat. I didn't plant any of these trees. Bring me back to Esquan. Take me to the Brady. What would Larry Merlo say if he was standing in that stilt blind yesterday? Well, he was, you know, it, like what I was, you know, mentioned when I was, you know, at Close Zone with you farms um you know growing up we didn't venture out of our area you know i <clears throat> i hunted butte creek you know i had all the natural little ponds and oxbows that i needed on a creek um you know in high school and junior high uh, and in college uh you know then we ventured onto the river um so we had deep timber we had flooded oaks, you know, the river would flood, you had oxbows, you had gravel bars. We had our rice fields, we had Canada goose hunting, we had goose pits for specks and snows, we had great duck hunting, we shot mallard sprig, seven duck limit. You know, I had all that right here. I mean, I, I was raised with it, jump shooting, you know, jump 
100 mallards at a time. Um, you know, raised on Lano Seco, you know, ventured to the Adams Ranch, which soon became Ranch Westquan. So we had everything here, and my dad, you know, my dad worked 365. You know, he didn't have time to go anywhere. I mean, we, we didn't have any money. We were poor. Um, he had to work every day. But <clears throat> he would sit there and he'd be going, you know, he loved his experiences that he had with Mr. Hoffman. You know, when we met Mr. Hoffman, um, Mr. Hoffman took him to um, Texas. He took him to Arkansas and Mississippi. You know, they, they went to those places, you know, in the early 2000s, and my dad got to start experiencing things. So my dad yesterday, back to your question, he would be happy that we experienced it. Um, he would feel a little bit bad that he never took me to those places, I think. He would feel a little guilty. Um, but he knows now that, um, you know, I'm, my, his grandsons are going to experience, you know, all of these things. And it's, it's because we can leave what we have here now and go appreciate what somebody else has. You know, like what Matt has. Um, you know, at, at 53 now, I want to know what Matt's story is. I, I like to hear his relationship with his father because that brings me back um, to me and my dad as Yancey just made reference to him and his father at four. Well, I, I was five. I, was, I, can, I can remember five and six vividly. Um, helping my dad at, at, at uh, Lano Seco, camouflage and blinds, uh, putting the decoys out. Um, I remember the stand-up blind with the chicken wire wrapping put in the contour fields. I remember the field right behind the clubhouse at Lano Seco. I remember setting that blind up and sitting there on a bucket while my dad weaved the water grass through it, okay? I mean, these are... These are stand-up blinds, you know, that today we would look at it and we'd go, <laughs> what a, <laughs> what's that guy doing? Um, but I remember those days, and I remember my first duck with him, and, um, but when I hear these stories, they make me feel really good um, because I, it, I, I like to go back. I like to remember. Matt made a reference yesterday. Um, how, um, you know, who was it that made the reference about, had a dream about his dad? God dang it forgot who I was having that conversation with. Um, blank that out. Uh, but, you know, when you, when you go meet these people and we go to places like what we did when we went and did our Argentina hunt, um, you know, I just, I remember when my dad went on his first trip uh, down into the Gulf of Mexico uh, with Mr. Hoffman on the Crystal, you know, and he caught Dorado and tuna and all that. I mean, that was a big experience for him. Because we just never, we never did things like that, you know? And so now I go with my friends, the Kuipers, you know, and I go on their boat down into Mexico. Um, common denominator, well, well, waterfowling. And, and water you know what? That's yeah. the greatest thing about it is that it's the common denominator that brings all this together. Like Yancey was touching on. Yep. It's a cool deal. Well, well, if I may, Rocky brought up another really important point that I want to emphasize what is the commonality that happens in the blind? Memories are made. And especially when a father and son goes out, or father and daughter, 
uh, when when two brothers, when best buddies go out, you know, the, you're making memories, lasting memories together. And, and I think that's one of the really valuable and and unheralded parts of of, of waterfowling. But, uh, you know, memories are made and and, you know, that that sustains you and, and that gives you that that desire to, to build another memory, to get back in the blind again and to build another another memory. And we and we touch back on what Larry Gurry said, you know, and the what he likes to do with his little piece of heaven, close own farms, is his family hunts. You know, um, in the old days, you know, in the twenties and the thirties, you know, um, you know, the mothers um, and the women they they just they didn't hunt. The men went hunting. You know, now you know with groups like CWA. Um, in our women's hunt program and becoming an outdoors woman and so forth, we have, you know, we have these moms, you know, and so, and, and, and other women and ladies like Regina Stafford who are actively hunting with their kids. You know, it's just not the dad and the son or daughter. You actually now have the mother going out with her children and sitting there in the blind when maybe the boy is calling or the girl or even the mom calls, you know, it, it, it's, it's becoming a more family orientated sport. Um, you know, something that my father was, you know, always trying to push, um, you know, but it was just, it still ha wasn't the right time yet. But now um, in the last 10 years, we've seen so much change. Fastest growing talk. demographic, women hunters. I'll end it by saying this, because we have an unbelievable dinner tonight with the Particelli family up here, and um, our buddy Jeffrey Shiflett from HG, Hunter Glenn. Memories, Yancey touched on it. The diversification of the state, we've all touched on it. In the last six days, I've laid in painter suits called Tyvex and laid under specs falling on my head. I've been in a pit blind on a levee over a rice check, watching Widgeon and Pintail give it up like there's no tomorrow, and Green Wing Teal. I've been on the Sacramento River and watched stripers hit a bait and reel it in, and it's unbelievable eating. I've been on Lano Seco and caught bass like they were M&Ms. It was unreal. I've been on the San Francisco Bay in a stilt blind, shooting the King of Ducks canvas backs. Today, I was in another stand-up blind, shooting widgeons in a completely different format than I've ever done in California. Up against trees, Rocky judged it right with high winds. They were gonna wanna get up against these banks and get out of the wind. All of that has happened right here in California in the matter of six days. My point, Yancey and Rocky, is that you talk about memories and you talk about stories. It's so easy to forget yesterday because today was unreal. And I was talking to Cody Jinks today about Life will take you by the horns and just whip you around. And it's our job and our responsibility to pump the brakes and go, wait a minute, I just experienced the part of Chelly's today and good stories in the blind and we're getting ready to eat wild rabbit and speckle belly geese and green wing till tonight. But I can't forget about those canvas backs yesterday. And it's hard to do right. because we're always just looking for that next gratification, that next adrenaline rush. And life is about pumping those brakes and sitting back and going, Wow, I gotta take a deep breath. And you know, Rocky, you as good as anybody. I have a heart, and you do too. 
I have a hard time sitting back and going, and just letting it all go and just being like, man, I got to think about how special yesterday was. I had a lot of anxiety yesterday. There was a lot coming at us yesterday. We were, boom, boom, it was bad. And then today I was like, man, I'm just like getting ribbed by this guy I've known for three months. Stefano Particelli is literally talking to me. Like we're ribbing each other. Like we're best friends. I've known this guy 90 days and that's what duck hunting does. But now I'm sitting there going, I didn't think about the canvas backs one time today until today's, until we sat down today. Cause today's duck hunt was so memorable for me. And tomorrow I know we're going to do something else. I'm going to probably forget about today's duck hunt. And it's our job to be like, man, it's our responsibility to be like, Hey, slow down. If I could teach somebody that's in their twenties right now coming up is dude, I'm telling you, this clock does not stop ticking. It goes, it goes along with the theme of Yancey being 76. You're 53. I'm 46. You're 30 years older than me. And you're having as much fun, if not more than me right now with your gun, your duck calls, your travels, your friends, your dinners, your red wine, everything is unbelievable in this lifestyle, but it's hard to slow down and go, man, I got to value yesterday just as much as I value today or tomorrow. That's a lesson in life to me of like, man, just pump the brakes and freaking slow down for a minute. Any closing words, Mr. Yancey? Well, I'm I'm really uh, I appreciate you, you know, inviting me to spend a little bit of time with you today. You're both fine gentlemen. You're great waterfowlers. I've learned a lot from you fellas. I think you know, in my 76 years, I've learned a little bit from a variety of different people, and it's allowed me to not just hunt well, but to enjoy the hunt more. You know, and I think that's one of the one of the uh, nice things about getting a little bit older is you is you do start focusing a little bit more on the people in the blind with you, building those memories, sitting back and enjoying, you know, watching some other people have the fun too. And, and so uh, I appreciate all that you're doing in California, especially for California waterfowl. Rocky, you're the man, you know, Rocky's dad's. Uh, Larry that we just talked about a moment ago is in the California waterfowl hall of fame. And I have no doubt in my mind that this gentleman's going to be there one day himself. We're sitting by a Hall of Famer. Yeah. You'll be in there too, Yancey. Well, I don't know about that, but I know. I got to ask you I one question. I got to well. ask you a question. <laughs> Did you like shooting that canvas back out from underneath Chad yesterday? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Did that feel good? You beat him up to the punchline. Quick. <laughs> quick. I don't, think I'll, I don't think I'll answer that. <laughs> Rocky, any closing words? Oh, God, I just want the viewers and whomever's listening to just, you know, if you're thinking, you know, next year, uh, this will probably air next summer sometime. If you're thinking about a place to, uh, you know, go see this coming fall, um, you know, and hunt and experience, uh, go to CaliforniaWaterfowl.org. Look at our hunt program. Check out our refuge system. Um, research some guides out here. Um, you can call me. Um, I'm easy to get a hold of. I know a lot of good, reputable guides um, in the state. My friend Casey Stafford, he's great guide over on the west side. Um, we have a guides association, some good guys in it. Um, and uh, we have a lot of really good opportunities out here for both hunting and fishing. Um, Chad mentioned the stripers. We have amazing striper fishing on the Sacramento and the Feather River. We have great trout fishing, fly fishing, um, pig hunting, deer hunting. 
Uh, we have an amazing elk population in California. Uh, you know, Tule elk, Roosevelt's, Rocky Mountains. Um, so uh, just check out California. Um, you know, we, uh, we stopped the decline this year on the Hunter uh, license decline. Uh, we actually increased it by five, six percent. Uh, so um, <clears throat> things are starting to hopefully turn around a little bit for this state. Um, you know, just uh, put a blindfold on to our politics out here. Uh, but we're still we're still a hunting state and a lot of good people out here. Well said, Rock. Go to CaliforniaWaterfowl.org. I'm going to say that again. Go to CalWaterfowl.org and become a member. I don't care where you live. New York, Florida, Arkansas, Mississippi, North Dakota, South Dakota, Kansas, Nebraska, Oklahoma, Texas, Idaho, Montana, Washington, Oregon. I've had so many unbelievable duck hunts everywhere I just named. Wyoming, Colorado, the Front Range. If you live in those states, anywhere in this country, get a $35 membership and become a member of California Waterfowl because it starts out here. And it spreads eastward. And I'm talking the ammo out here right now. It's under attack. Guns under attack. Today, yesterday, as a matter of fact, bear hunting is under attack. They outlawed dogs on bears, and now they're going to go after bear hunting as a whole. Predator management. It's crazy to me, but it's organizations like California Waterfowl that are fighting for advocacy, and they're working with the assemblymen and all of the councilmen and the senators and farmers and ranchers and hunters and conservationists and providers to make sure that we secure this hunting tradition and lifestyle, these shooting rights, our Second Amendment rights for many generations to come. So don't just think about your hunt today. Think about your kids' hunt, your grandkids' hunt tomorrow and many tomorrows to come. This has been another episode of the Fowl Life Podcast. Thank you, Yancey. Thank you, Rock. Thank you, California Waterfowl Association. Guys, please keep subscribing. Girls, please keep subscribing. Download our podcast. Spread the message. We're trying to be diversified in our guests and our topics. Thank you all very much for supporting the partners and sponsors that support us. We will see you soon right back here at another episode of the Foul Life Podcast. Jake, Tom, hit that button. This is 2AM Logic. The song is called My Foul Life.